Okay, uh, good evening. Laudetur Jesus. Now uh, we're recording. With me is, uh, and I'm very, very honored for that, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Um, before we begin, sir, um, I would like to say a quick prayer to our Holy Mother Mary. If sure. Perfect. Amen. Spomni se opremila devica, da še nikdar ni bilo slišati, da bi bila ti, koga zapustila, ki je pod tvoje varstvo pribežal, tebe pomoči prosil in se tvoji priprošni priporočal. S tem zaupanjem hitim k tebi, o devic, devica in mati, k tebi pridem in pred teboj zdihajoč grešnik stojim. Nikar ne zavrzi, o mati besede, mojih besed, tem več milostno me poslušaj in usliši. Amen. Gloria Patri et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Sir, I'm so honored to have you here, and uh, since we have uh, just a limited time to talk, I would just go straight uh, to the point. Um, I was thinking how to start a show with you, and um, just in general, the when I was um, when I look today at the world everything seems upside down and the gut feeling in me tells me that almost everything's completely wrong like we have um sodomy that's completely out of control not just not just that it is there but it's out of control it's going in the field of field of pedophilia and all the other degenerate stuff and we have abortion in abundance uh i just recently i had to talk about abortion um, I think whatever is happening today bad in the world is it could be a sort of a punishment from God because we're killing innocent unborn babies in millions and um, we have this um, confusion regarding sexes without uh, regarding roles uh, about sexes. Do you sense that as well? Yes, yes, there's evil is, seems to be triumphant in the world. But there's never been a time when God has not been in control of human history. And uh, the problem we have is getting uh, understanding that and seeing how it is working. And generally, the control, uh, the, the control of history is a form of consciousness, and it becomes apparent to us only through consciousness. Uh, it has to begin with consciousness, and then it can eventuate in action but everything has to begin with consciousness because you can't act unless you know something and so you have to have some understanding of the way god works in human history otherwise you're going to get depressed you're going to become violent you'll go out and kill yourself or you'll kill someone else because you're full of despair uh, uh and that feel that nothing else will solve the problem can we so, sense yeah sorry ahead. yeah can we sense that throughout the whole history um, I'm referring here to your latest title, and I can't wait, wait to get the book Logos Rising. And uh, I was uh, thinking... Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, regarding that title, Logos Rising, uh, do you mean by it just at the moment? Or is that a perpetual stance in history, if I may say so? Is, is a, Logos it, 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 constantly rising? Yes, it is the movement of history, of human history. Now, if you're saying constantly, 
then you're, you're implying that there are no setbacks. And that's not true. There are setbacks in human history. And I discuss them in the book. Uh, the the decline, for example, uh, the uh, death of Saint Augustine mm -hmm. in North Africa. The the last books of Saint Augustine were put on a ship. He's an old man. He's dying, and the uh, the Arian heretics are marching toward uh, where he's living. And once they arrive, they kill off the Catholics, and the Catholic Church disappears from North Africa. And the only thing that's left is the heretical Donatist Church, and all of Africa succumbs to heresy. This is obviously not a forward movement in history. This happened after, for example, the Council of Nicaea, when mm -hmm. they, the Greek Church finally came up with a, an understanding of Jesus, the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Father, between the Logos and the and the God the Father. Uh, one of the great intellectual achievements of all of human history, and within uh, 100 years, it's gone. Less than 100 years, it's gone. And it never came back, in a sense, to, to North Africa. So, I mean, mm -hmm. we have to keep this in mind. There was a great step forward, as I said, with the understanding of the Trinity, the Council of Nicaea, 325. 410, the Roman Empire falls, and at that point, the church loses its police power and the church gets obliterated in Africa and in the East for the most part. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you have to keep, you have to have some type of sophistication to understand how Logos is rising. And it is not a constant, you know, like Tuesday it's higher than it was Wednesday and so on and so forth. It goes back and forth according to the principles that uh, Augustine established in the city of God, where it's going to be a conflict between the city of God and the city of man for uh, until the end of history. But that doesn't mean that history doesn't have a purpose or that there's some type of greater plan in mind, because part of the plan is God's uh, giving free will to, to man, because you could not have reason without free will. And in giving man free will, he knew that he was going to choose evil. And he does. Man does that on a regular basis. You think since since you mentioned because uh, for instance um, Bishop Schneider in his latest book uh, I don't know did, did you read it uh, Christus I Vinci? haven't seen it no uh, it's it's a perfect book it's a sort of catechism for 21st century Christian and he says uh, that sentence really stuck in my mind because I have a lot of libertarian friends and they uh, say the same thing over and over so free will you have it so you can choose to do good or evil. But uh, Bishop Schneider says that free will cannot be used to this, to choose for evil, but in free will you can only decide to do good, to, to, to choose God in free will. Right. But so, and, and that kind of goes with what you're writing in mostly all of your works, especially Libido Dominandi. So uh, it's not free will if you're doing something bad. It's no. slavery. No, that's exactly the point. You you are free to be rational because you are a rational creature. The minute you choose irrationality, you cease to be free. Even though you may seem uh, freer, at least at the beginning, because you're choosing to gratify your passions and your passions, uh, the, there's some type of release that seems like freedom, at least initially. But it's slavery. It ends up being slavery. And mm. that is also... Uh, a part of what happened over the course of the, what, what should we say, the last 50 years 
which was the last uh, attempt at creating this utopia of sexual liberation, began in the 60s in the United States, spread throughout the world. And now we all know that it's a form of slavery. Um, as, for example, during the last la end of 2019, when a, a group of young men decided to boycott pornography because they, they are aware now that they were enslaved to it. And it's not freedom. But I mean, this, this is again, uh, that is an example of consciousness. That's an example of Logos rising mm -hmm. out of the very slavery that was created to ensnare these people. And I think when, once you start thinking, seeing all this along these lines, you begin to see how God works in human history. Because God sometimes allows you the freedom to make your own mistakes because that's the only thing that's going to convince you. Uh, ben, ben Franklin said, experience keeps an expensive school, but fools will learn in no other. Well, this is proof of that. Sometimes uh, the only school you'll ever learn is, is the expensive school, the school of experience. You could have listened to people who were smarter, wiser than you, but you chose not to. So you had to learn the hard way. And, and but think you learned. The fact that you learned is a good sign. I mean that's that's something I think in intrinsical to to Catholicism, uh, the, the the God kind of predicted because He knows our nature that we need to learn and we need to take experiences also from the bad things since you mentioned and right. that's what's happening in the church. But regarding uh, today um, nowadays, uh, do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? That's what, Lenin always liked to make sure that things got worse before they got better. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't really. So things, things are. How are things getting better? Let's look at the the COVID uh, pandemic. Okay. This is of the course. first time the entire. I think it's the first time the entire world has been subjected to one uh, form of social engineering. This is unique in all of human history. Uh, we've had various catastrophes in the past. They've always been used as an excuse to impose some form of control. If you think of 9-11, for example, that was a, a, a catastrophe, and it was immediately used to, put, to uh, eliminate certain freedoms in the United States and throughout the world because we had to fight terrorism. And everyone went along with it pretty much. I mean, everybody thought that those planes flew into that building and that, that happened. The building number seven collapsed all by itself, uh, but they accepted it. And then uh, maybe a couple of years later, then the truth movement started to form and then uh, opposition started to form. With the COVID thing, it happened immediately. The resistance happened immediately. And this, it seems to me, indicates a higher level of consciousness than before uh, in any time before in in my in my memory. Okay. Would you but, think? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, would you think that what's happening now with uh, the the form of social engineering uh, regarding the COVID nineteen is just a, a culmination of what we were prepared or how were we prepared to react? So we we kind of what we did, and especially it, it can be seen in Catholic Church. We kind of frightened for our lives and we were tried we we decided we're going to risk it all just just to be alive whereas any time in history 
people kind of embraced death when when it was there. Embraced what? Death. Death. Yes. I mean, I think, I think people are always fearful of death. If, if let's say if you compare it to the Black Plague in in Europe in the 14th century, I, I don't. They were prepared for death because it was more of a Christian culture. Mm. Uh, but nobody wanted death. Nobody embraced it. You died whether you liked it or not. And the church was there to give you an explanation of the meaning of your life vis-a-vis -vis death. Yes, okay. The, dif yeah, exactly. the difference now. The difference now is that you've got basically two groups of people, at least in the United States. And the, 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 the difference is that one group believes in nature and the other group does not. So there's one group that believes that, okay, this is a virus. It may have been weaponized, but it has to function as a virus. It's not a bullet. It's not a mosquito. It's not malaria. It's a virus. Okay, and then they also believe that human beings have a nature and that part of your nature is an immune system and your immune system is created by God to deal with things like viruses. So between the two of these things, you come up with a plan, what you think is a rational plan of action. On the other hand, if you are, for example, uh, the attorney general of the state of Michigan, who is a lesbian. Okay, your whole life is war against nature. Uh, you don't believe that there's a thing called nature. You believe that human sexuality is a social construct. You believe that everything is a social construct. Well, that means in some sense, uh, you have no protection. There's no protection there. It's only your efforts that can save you. And so mm. you have to have maximal effort to present, prevent this bad thing from happening. So you have to lock people down. That's the way it broke down in the United States. It yeah, came down to basic, basically, uh, which which group believes, which part of the country believes more in God, which part of the country believes that everything is a social construct, and that's the way the reaction was uh, uh, created. That 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 determined how people reacted in those states. But could we say that on one level, even the belief in God was kind of put aside because the church is closed, the sacraments were taken away. Um, it was like we don't believe in what we should believe in. Well, the, I, I mean, I think a lot of people feel that the church, the church's reaction was weak. I think they feel that way. Exactly. And the problem, the problem with the church is consciousness. Uh, the church still does not understand the term social engineering. They still don't mm. understand what it means. Because if they did, they would have a whole different view of their own history in the United States of America, for example. So in America, uh, I wrote a book called uh, The Slaughter of Cities, Urban Renewal as uh, Ethnic Cleansing. And in that book, I described how the Catholic neighborhoods were destroyed in America. It was mm -hmm. the government that did this. Well, the, the, the church, by and large, does not believe that. They have no explanation for what happened to them, simply on that basic level. Like, mm. how is it that there were so many big parishes with so many children going to Catholic school and so many vocations, and how is it that it's just changed overnight? Well, they don't have an explanation. And so as a result, they can't formulate a plan. And they still have a sense that America is a benign 
force in human history. Uh, they believe in, it's called Americanism. It was even a heresy that was condemned by Pope Leo XIII. Yeah. Yeah. They don't understand that this regime was its en the enemy of the church. They don't understand that. And so they have difficulty coping with this latest crisis. And the classic example of their the failure to cope is the Jesuits uh, in America. They have a magazine <laughs> called America, which is significant. Uh, and uh, they had articles... Uh, one article was, I am a scientist, we must close down our churches. That is a complete acceptance of the dominant oligarchic narrative. Complete uh, uh, acceptance of that, even to the point of shutting down your own worship services. James Martin, who is probably the, the, the he's, he's the main promoter of homosexuality in the Catholic Church. He gets an oh, audience yes. with Pope Francis I at the drop of a hat. Yeah. He has gone on, uh, I believe it was Fox News, saying we should not open the churches. Well, what you're seeing the same thing that I just mentioned. If your life is revolves around promoting homosexuality, you are at war with nature. If you are at war with nature, then you feel very vulnerable. You need the big state to protect you. You, you don't feel that the church can protect you because you've abandoned all of the principles that the church is based on, including especially the moral law, which is your primary protection in life because yeah. it tells you how to act. That's the problem with the church. The church and simply has, the church, to make a, a long story short, has internalized the commands of its oppressors. That's the problem. Yeah, I, And I want to talk to you about moral law, but before that, I want to ask you, do you think what what we're talking about right now is the consequence of FMS church? Or do you believe the church was infiltrated? Or maybe both? What was the first thing? What What the, did you the say? FMS church. So the, the feminine church. That the, the church is feminized from, from the p bishops, priests, seminaries. I, th I think the main problem is Americanism. I think uh, America, America after you think World globally? War II... Yes, I think that America after World War II became a global power. Mm. And the, the the Achilles heel of the Catholic Church is always reliance on princes. So a, a figure, even a figure as great as St. Jerome, could not conceive of the church without the Roman Empire. He, he, it, when, when the barbarian invasion started, like the Battle of Adrianople, that type of thing, He thought it was the end of the world. Well, the church has always done this. There's a, there was a certain time when the church was, it, it, it could not conceive of existing without France as its protector. And then France turned on it with the French Revolution. And then we have the 20th century and you have the rise of communism. And suddenly the Catholic church feels, well, we'll never survive uh, communism unless we have America protecting us. This is always a problem. It's always been a problem with the Catholic Church. There was a time when the, when the apostles felt that if we didn't have the Mosaic Law, how are we going to survive without the Mosaic Law? That's the end of the world. It's chaos. Well, we're now in a position where we have to, the church has to separate itself from the American Empire. 
because the American empire has become the main enemy, not just of the church, but of the world. Is I it, mean, it is the main no, source I, of chaos in the world right now. Yeah, and I mean no offense, but I think that um, the Americanism is like the paragon of everything degenerate that, that could... Maybe there are a few degeneracy coming from Japan, but I think they're mostly under influence of Americanism. Yeah, Japan is a, a, a conquered American colony. Yeah. Uh, so so they have no independent existence of their own. Uh, so you're right. It is, it is the main problem right now. How is the church going to deal with the American empire? Well, then the question is, well, what is the American empire based upon? And it turns out it's science. Mm -hmm. And so and, and because it's based on science, they can operate in contact with ultimate reality. And so what you saw here was the church completely capitulating to that understanding. It's implicit in that article that I told you about in America. I am a scientist. Therefore, we must close our churches. Well, if you're a scientist, I can't argue with you. You have absolute truth on your side. What am I supposed to say? And so the bishops just throw up their hands and they say, well, we'll do whatever the scientists tell us. And so you have this ridiculous spectacle of people wearing face masks in church. They're six feet apart. I just went, they just reopened the churches here. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's enough to make a grown man cry. You know, I, I'm not trying to play down the existence of this thing. But I think all of the evidence indicates now that it's passed and they're basically closing the barn door after the horse is out. Is the science a new god? Yes, of course it is. If one thing I cover in this Logos rising is the conflict between science and religion. You've always had this conflict about who speaks for ultimate reality. Who speaks for it? But, uh, who, ha who has ultimate reality at the basis? And there was a, one of the tragedies, again, a setback in the history of Logos took place uh, in the, at the, nom the nominalist crisis uh, in uh, European history. The rise of people like William of Ockham. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Thomistic synthesis was one, another great achievement in intellectual history. Didn't even last a century. By the time uh, the middle of the 15th, uh, I'm sorry, the middle of the 14th century, nominalism had basically spread throughout all of the universities, especially in Germany. It had a mm -hmm. devastating effect on German intellectual life. And the culmination of nominalism in Germany was Martin Luther. Yeah, that's just what I wanted to say. What's your view on Martin Luther? You, you have German ancestors, dude. I'm half German, and I lived in Germany during the 1970s. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, Were you in, in contact with a lot of Protestants there? No, it was a completely Catholic region. It was all Catholic. Uh, it was the Lower Rhine. I was on the Lower Rhine. It's a complete, and they were conquered oh, yeah. by Prussia, and they hated Prussian influence. There was still resentment against the Prussians on the Lower Rhine. I didn't make, actually, I didn't make contact with, a, with the Prussian mindset until uh, just about two years ago. So it was like almost 40 years after I left Germany, some journalist for Deutsche Welle called me up. And he starts talking to me. About, I said, Is, are you interviewing me? Uh, for uh, I'm flattered to be on Deutsche Welle because we're speaking German. I speak fluent German. Mm. And he said, no, I'd lose my job if I interviewed you. 
Okay, so you're not interviewing me. And then he starts arguing with me about the Wellhausen theory of dating the Gospels, okay? And I said, first of all, Logos Rising really doesn't have anything to do with that. I mean, if I had written a book on that, I'd be happy to discuss it with you, but I'm not. Well, you have to talk about that because you're talking about history. And this is, and it was just at this point that I made contact with this kind of dogmatic Prussian mindset that had eluded me for all the time I was in Germany. And it's important because the chapter on Hegel is important because mm. Hegel is another one of those seminal figures. He, he kind of synthesized a whole tradition, was part of the resurrection of Logos that had been brought about in Germany in reaction to the skepticism of David Hume and British empiricism. And it went wrong. And part of the reason it went wrong was Martin Luther. Yeah, well, you're touching the subject also in uh, your book called Baron Metal. Um, and I just want to ask you, we were taught that Protestant ethics, it's what made the world flourish. Uh, would you agree with that? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely. Pro what, what was Protestantism? It was a looting operation. F first of all, in England, it was nothing but a looting operation. There was no theological justification for the English Reformation whatsoever. None. It was simply aristocrats lusting after church property and wanting to steal it and destroying centuries of intellectual development when they looted those monasteries. Trampling books into the ground under horses' hooves, using them to light fires, pages out of sacred text, ripping the gold off the Bible, you know, uh, because you're a looter. It was terrible. And it set back intellectual development. Probably, I mean, we'll never know how much. And, and, and I think it's, yeah. Uh, in, in Germany, you did have, it was a looting operation too, but you had a, a theological justification for the looting operation. And that, that was known as Lutheranism. And it involved doctrines like the enslaved will, which sprang out of Luther's personal life. Luther was a man who could not control his passions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He, he couldn't control his anger, he couldn't control his drinking, and he couldn't control lust either. And when he ended up running off and marrying the nun, Katharina von Bora, he justified it theologically by saying God did it to him. And that has had, that had a devastating effect on intellectual development. And Hegel is an example of it. I go into detail about how when Hegel is writing the phenomenology of the spirit, okay. uh, he's really talking about the Trinity. This is, this is Hegel trying to come up with a, an exp, uh, use, explaining the Trinity using Enlightenment terminology. Okay, that's impossible, but I mean, maybe it's going to, maybe it's a good idea. Let's see what you bring out of it. But at the same time he's doing this, he's having an affair with his chambermaid. Believe me, you are not going to understand the Trinity if you're having sex with your chambermaid. I guarantee you that. And so the result is the same thing that happened to Luther. In other words, I can't be at fault. It must be God who is at fault. He introduces necessity into the dialectic. And as soon as you do that, you wreck whatever 
uh, uh, motion, the dialectic has, you wreck your understanding of it, and you pave the way for materialism and pantheism, which is exactly what followed. When, after uh, Hegel is still teaching, one of his students in Berlin was Ludwig Feuerbach. Feuerbach wrote him a letter saying, uh, I, I think the dialectic is great, but you don't need God. It functions all by itself. You don't need God. And the man who picked that up was Karl Marx. And then you ended up being subjected to Karl Marx for a certain period of your history. Well, we, we had communism for about 70 years. So it's right. it's quite an age. I wanted to ask you, um, would you say that... So what we're talking about now, it's very interesting. And I wanted to ask you, um, do you think that whatever doesn't have a substance in Catholicism is bound to be destroyed? No, no. Okay. And the proof of that is Greek philosophy. Greek okay. philosophy had no basis in Catholicism. It preceded Catholicism by centuries, by seven centuries. But yet the, the mind, God created the mind so that it could know. And those Greeks did the best. They were sincere people. They did the best they could, and they came up with an achievement that the church did not reject. The church accepted their achievement and incorporated what they did into Christian revelation. When John mm -hmm. wrote the gospel in Greek, and he used the words like logos, en arche, en halogos, kai logos, en prostheon, kai logos, en theos. That is the yeah. incorporation of the best that the human mind could produce and not rejecting it as Luther would have, uh, calling reason a whore, but accepting it and then taking it to a higher level. That's Catholicism. So you, you, you agree that when, um, when the word logos was used in a Catholic uh, environment, it wasn't meant just as a word. It was much, much more. Well, it was deepened. It was the word. That word became the foundation of a whole new way of understanding the universe. But, I mean, like God could have descended from heaven and created a new language uh, and, and told everybody, you've got to learn this new language. He didn't do that, did he? He built on what was already there. And the two main pillars that were already there were Greek philosophy and Hebrew scripture. The Hebrew understanding of history combined with the metaphysical understanding of the Greeks led to a new synthesis, a much the most powerful synthesis in history, and that's called Christianity. And that is the cutting edge of Logos. Now, Christianity had a particular form, and the form was the Catholic Church. And so the yeah. Catholic Church became the cutting edge of Logos in human history. But with, with the coming of Logos, something else happened that we're, we can see throughout the whole history. Anti-Logos appeared as well. Right. You're, and that's never going to that's never going to change. Yeah. And Augustine is the man who said that this was going to happen. City okay. of God, city of man. This is the conflict of human history. Okay, and it it means that as long as you have people with free will, some are going to choose evil over good. So the city of God is love of God to the extinction of self and the city of man is love of self to the extinction of God. And that's going to be throughout history. God knew that. This is not a surprise to God. There are no surprises in God's mind. It is he a surprise knew that. to us. 
Yeah. It's a surprise to us. And sometimes we are bitterly disappointed and we think, what is God doing? This is, this is also, it's in, it's in the scripture, it's in the parable of Jesus Christ asleep in the boat, <laughs> where the storm comes up and we are on the deck and we're, we finally can't take it. We've gone to Christ and say, don't you care that we're all going to die? That's the way it seems in human history. It's always okay. going to be the way. The ship, that boat is the church. It's always going to be tossed about by storms. And so we better just bring that, our understanding of that to our understanding of human history so we don't have any naive idea that somehow history is going to take place without conflict. That's never mm. going to happen. But conflict brings about a better understanding of the truth. That is the whole motion of Logos that I'm talking about in human history. But we have to strive for it. Now, uh, just one question. Uh, can you explain for um, our listeners what exactly is anti-Logos and how, how does it materialize in this world? The first, uh, the first appearance of anti-Logos took place at the time of Christ when the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. Mm. Now, I've written the, the, the preliminary to Logos rising was the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Mm -hmm. I could not have written that book without using the word Logos because I had to expand. I had to explain what that meant. What does it mean to reject Jesus Christ? Well, he is the Logos. So if you reject Jesus Christ, you're rejecting the Logos. Well, the Logos is the order of the universe, among other things. He is the personification of that order. He is the force that implements that order throughout history. And you kill them. You, meaning the Jewish people, you kill them. So what does that mean? And then you said, his blood be on us and our children. Well, this is serious. This is serious. And so I'm saying, if you reject Logos, you become a revolutionary. because And you become dedicated to the overthrow of Logos in human history. And that's, so I'm just, I wrote that book 11 years ago. And I was immediately uh, expelled from the synagogue of, of polite discourse. Uh, but so, you know, sometimes you wonder, was that just a category of my mind? Was I imposing that on people? And then so just recently I was invited to go to Armenia. Okay. And I thought, what do I know about Armenia? Next to nothing. And I started to look into the Armenian genocide And that was basically the status of that is Turks pointing their fingers at the Armenians and Armenians pointing their fingers at the Turks and saying, you're responsible. Well, guess what I found? Guess what was really responsible for that awful incident in human history? The oh, Jewish revolutionary spirit was responsible because oh. both, both the young Turks and the Armenians had been influenced by the revolutionary movement beginning in 1848, and especially the revolutionary movement in Russia, and especially the Jewish revolutionary movement in Russia. So the Dashnaks and the Hunchaks, which were the two main Armenian groups, belonged to Narodnaya Volia, which is the first Jewish terrorist organization, which I describe in detail in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So I'm saying What, what I realized, it's a category of reality. There is that thing out there, and it explains human history in a way 
that you will not understand unless you have that concept. And so if you're talking about the, ro the role of anti-Logos in human history, that's where it began. And the Jews are intimately connected with it. And saying that will get you in a lot of trouble, but it's true. But would you say that Logos rising is actually um, starting to realize what anti-Logos is, uh, starting to recognize it, starting to uh, fight against it? Like, for instance, um, for 50 years or something like that, um, our society believed that um, liberal sexuality and pornography and all that stuff is perfectly fine, but um, for the last let's say five, 10 years, we're starting to realize it's doing a lot, a lot of damage to, to our um, brains culture. and to society. And your culture. Yes. Yeah. The, the, ter the turning point from my perspective in that regard came when I, I went to Poland mm. uh, to do a book tour for the Polish edition of Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. And it was crucial because it, it depended, that book tour depended on the Catholic Church. Hmm. Virtually every place I went was a Catholic institution. And if the church had turned against me, that would not have happened. And it, so it was the first night when I arrived in Warsaw. And we're going to the first venue, the first time I'm going to speak, and the publisher's phone is ringing every two minutes. You got to cancel the book tour. Jones is an anti-Semite. You know, there's going to be a big demonstration in Wrocław, all of this type of stuff. It's in the papers. And when I got to the chancery office for the Archdiocese of Warsaw, I said a prayer in the church. And then I met the chancellor and the chancellor said, don't worry about it. We're going to go ahead with it. Now that decision, I think, had consequences because that was uniting an idea and an institution. Now, I have no doubt that if something similar like that happened in the United States of America, the bishops would have canceled the book tour. It never would have gotten that far in the United yeah. States yeah. because they have no independent thinking in the, in the Catholic Church in the United States. They, they, are, they are crippled, completely crippled by a false understanding of Nostra Aetate. The uh, document on other religions from Vatican II. Oh yeah, completely well, crippled. Do you want to talk about Vatican II? Yes, I could talk about Vatican II. We've, yeah, I'd we, love to hear what you have to say about Vatican II. Vatican II uh, took place in many ways at the high water mark of the American Empire. Okay, the CIA was not going to let something this important happen without trying to get involved. Sorry to interrupt. The outcome. Sorry to interrupt. Did you um, contacted CIA regarding the Vatican II um, as you did in uh, Medjugorje case? No, no, I did not. Okay. I did not. Um, uh, because in in many ways the story is it's not it's not uh, uh, it's it's public now. The story is public because the the information ministry for the. Uh, uh, for the CIA was Time Magazine, which was the biggest circulation magazine in America at that time. And the man who was the Vatican II correspondent for Time Magazine wrote a memoir about mm. what was going on at that time. 
and we were able to put these pieces together. Uh, Dave uh, David Wemhoff wrote a book called uh, uh, Time, Life, the CIA, and I believe the American Proposition. And uh, it's it talks about the influence of uh, Time magazine, people like C.D. Jackson, Henry Luce, and how they got involved in the Second Vatican Council through the Jesuit John Courtney Murray. John Courtney Murray was their agent. So the CIA is trying to influence the outcome uh, of Dignitatis Humanae, which was mm -hmm. on church-state relations. The Jews were involved as well. B'nai Brith and um, the American Jewish Committee had basically uh, arranged to have a their agent. Their agent was a Jesuit by the name of Malachi Martin. Mm -hmm. He was the assistant to Cardinal Bea, and he had become a double agent for the Jews. Uh, they were paying him through book, lucrative book deals. Uh, he became involved with Bob Kaiser. He ran off with Bob Kaiser's wife. There's a whole <laughs> sordid story there, but between all of these intrigues, the story began to emerge of these powerful groups trying to subvert uh, the Second Vatican Council. Now, they, if you're talking about the documents, they did not succeed. Those documents are uh, represent church teaching. You cannot get 2,000 bishops together and basically pull the wool over their eyes. It's not going to work. Mm -hmm. But what, time, what the CIA and the Jews did afterwards was control the interpretation of Vatican II. Even through, uh, for example, the, uh, the translations. This is the uh, Flannery trans translation of the documents of Vatican II and is full of errors and deliberate misrepresentations. Uh, John, uh, John Courtney Murray did the same thing with the Abbott translation, basically putting footnotes in that uh, basically contradicted the meaning of the text. Well, so that's... Uh, yeah. Go ahead. A lot of change after Vatican II. It's, it's not just, as you said... In, in, in what people perceived as uh, the documents talk about, which they weren't really talking about, the documents. No, I mean, so so the interpretation of Nostra Tate is yes. the, the church, uh, that the Jews did not kill Christ. <laughs> no, it didn't say that. It, what it said, even according to the Flannery translation, is not all Jews at the time of Christ, were responsible for his death. Well, whoever said all Jews were responsible? Did the Blessed Mother cry, crucify him at the foot of the cross? No, she didn't do that. No. So it's obvious, a restatement, it's obviously a restatement of traditional teaching. You cannot, uh, the, the Jews wanted a deliberate uh, statement to the effect that they were not responsible for the death of Christ, and they did not get it. The church did not give it to them. But the interpretation did, and yeah. there are people, bishops today, who think that the, the document says it, and they're wrong. The, the main problem was this experiment called Catholic-Jewish dialogue that was okay. supposed to be based on Nostra Aetate. It had a devastating effect on the church devastating effect on the church because the Jews manipulated it into basically the church betraying its own uh, gospel message. What What's your take on um, formulation of the words uh, Judeo-Christian society? 
as in Western society. Yeah, it, it came about in America during the 1950s. It was a time when the Jews were not particularly powerful and they wanted to associate themselves with powerful groups, uh, claiming that we had a common heritage. It, <laughs> Judeo-Christian is an oxymoron. If by Jew you mean what happened after the crucifixion, and that's generally what the word Jew applies to. So if you read the Gospel of St. John, he uses the word uh, Jew 71 times in his Gospel. It, it, 70 times, it's pejorative. <laughs> it is, it, the meaning of the Jew is a rejecter of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Now, if you're talking about there's a... I've already mentioned that there was a Hebrew component to Christianity and there is a Greek component mm -hmm. to Christianity. I still maintain that. But to say Judeo-Christian as if there's no difference between Jews and Christians is preposterous. Preposterous. Uh, and uh, maybe if we touch the subject on Medjugorje, I find your take on Medjugorje very, very interesting. Yes, tell me about what was the reaction in Slovenia to Medjugorje? Was it considered a Croatian fantasy or oh, no. was it? Well, no, because you, when I was listening to your talk with uh, on Patrick Coffin show about Medjugorje, yes. uh, yeah. in, in my circle, we're, we're a rather small circle of traditionalists. And it was very interesting. We, we really enjoyed uh, listening to that. Um, but in Slovenia, Medjugorje is a big thing. There's like, if there's a priest and wants to impress you, he says that he took five buses of children to Medjugorje right. and they had a great time. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, that doesn't impress me. <laughs> so no. That was a stupid thing to do. <laughs> so, well, the same yeah. thing was true pretty much in America as well. So if you if you showed any indication that you took your Catholicism seriously, yeah. some pious lady would come up to you and ask <laughs> you if you would like to go to Medjugorje, because this was obviously the culmination of everything Catholic in this world. Yes. And lots of people went uh, from America. Uh, and I, at this point, this was around beginning in the mid 80s. Suddenly, the country was flooded with these photographic little books with beautiful pictures of the, the seers and the countryside and nobody knew where they came from. That's why I wrote to the CIA because I felt somebody <laughs> must be behind this thing. Uh, and then at that point, everybody, I, I, I had been, I had started uh, fidelity magazine in mm -hmm. 1981. So we're about five years in, I've got a certain following and they're all writing to me saying, oh, is this true or not? And I could not tell. You could not tell because it was all propaganda. It was all mm. propaganda. And you had to do the research, and the research involved going there. So I had to go there. And so in 88, I met with uh, Bishop Zanich, mm -hmm. who was the uh, bishop who was there when the so-called apparitions began. And I had a long, frank conversation with him. And he said in no uncertain terms that it was a, a hoax. And then, so then you go into the details and uh, it turns out it's true. Well, that's not the message that my readers wanted to hear. <laughs> so That was not the message because you remember, we're at the high point of the anti-communist crusade. This is the beginning. We can see the goal line here. You know, we're getting close. The end is close. Uh, at the same time, we're seeing Medjugorje propaganda. We're also seeing P-38 
pictures from Gdańsk, the shipyard in Gdańsk, with these inspiring pictures of the workers there going to confession out in the open. Pope John Paul II is in charge. It's everybody. We're all cheering for the end of communism. And it turns out that it looks as if Medjugorje is involved in that. Well, it wasn't, or at least not in the way we thought. I mean, there was an element of anti-communism, but there was also an element of the Ustasha. This was in many ways the rebirth of the Ustasha. Uh, Father Zovko would put the girb on the, the altar, which broke the law at that point, but he was showing his true colors. And so it was a combination of Ustasha politics and sexual deviance. That was the, the swamp out of which this whole apparition arose, sort of like swamp gas, like this <laughs> ignis fatuus, you know, uh, above the swamp. But, it, well, when we're talking about Medjugorje, a lot of people say, oh, it's it's great there, the, the perfect atmosphere, it's so spiritual and stuff like that. But we all know also the, the so-called bad fruit stories. And, right. Uh, I mean, how, how how do you think people perceive that? How how did they continue to lie to themselves that Medjugorje is something good? I, I have to say just quickly, I haven't been there, but since the beginning of my... Uh, knowledge about Medjugorje, I had a gut feeling that this place is not okay. No, I think you were right. I think there is a Catholic sense. If you got the true Catholic sense, uh, you know that St. John of the Cross said that uh, the devil rejoices when people seek private revelations. There's a danger <laughs> to these things. And the danger became apparent. The more you looked into it, the more apparent it became. First of all, it grew out of sexual sin. Uh, both, again, uh, again. I mean, so Tomislav Vlasic had, you know, gotten a nun pregnant. He had an illegitimate child. The the child was living in in Munich in Bavaria. The nun was there. I talked to her on the phone, or tried to talk to her. Talked to the son on the phone. I mean, this was investigative journalism because no one was willing to take this on. You had the same thing with Jozo Zovko. I mean, first of all, Tomislav Vlasic has been defrocked. Not only was he suspended, he was defrocked because of continual, repeated sexual deviance. And secondly, trafficking in spirits. And this is in the official dossier of the Diocese of Mostar. It's so this is, this, is, this is serious. This is serious. A any, so any, if you go to Benedict XIV and his criteria, for example, for um, evaluating uh, private revelations, any evidence of manipulation, any evidence of lying disqualifies the whole thing. And so what you have now is this preposterous Ruini Commission report, which says that the first seven apparitions were true and the other 70,000 are false. Well, that's preposterous. Do they have any theologians on that commission? This is ridiculous. And then you've got the, the Vatican now muddying the waters even further by sending this Polish bishop there to make some type of accommodation mm. for pilgrims. Well, wait a minute. Tell us first whether it's true or not. Don't talk about putting up pilgrims until you tell us whether it's true or false. Well, they're not doing that. Well, this is causing confusion. And it's secondly, making a lot of money, yeah. Yeah, we know they're making a lot of money, and we know money influences policy, but the church is supposed to be above that, but evidently oh. not.
And the second question is, where is Bishop Perich? Why aren't you talking to Bishop Perich? We have a bishop there who is the authority in this matter, and he's been completely ignored. Why is that? You know, I, I wanted to talk to you about Medjugorje because, as I said, a lot of Slovenians depend on it. And I'm kind of um, so being part of this traditionalist movement. I try to be uh, honest to what the truth is. And if we sense just a bit that Medjugorje isn't carrying um, fruit um, of truth, then we have to talk about it. Would you care to tell me in, in short, maybe what do you perceive as truth? Truth? Yes. Truth is the correspondence between the thing and the mind. Is there only one truth? No. Look, if I say uh, there's a bookshelf behind you, that statement is either true or false. Okay, now that was me moving my lips and their words went into your ears. Now, if you turn around, you will say, oh, yes, there is the bookshelf. That bookshelf is a category of reality. Those words are a category of my mind. If they correspond, that's called the truth. Okay. So, but yeah, but let's say in, in, in gender theory, um, many people have their own truth about what gender is and how we can perceive it. Yes. So what you're saying is that uh, gender is a category of the mind. It okay. is a social construct, and that's all there is, that there is no category of reality. So this is a form of German idealism, okay, where you are projecting an idea. You're saying that the world out there is an idea, and the idea, your mind controls that idea. Well, that's preposterous. That's preposterous. Isn't there some type of reality to nature? Don't, aren't male and female different? Does that have some type of significance or is it totally meaningless? Well, you've got people who are saying it's totally meaningless. Well, the burden is proof is on them, not on us. We know there's a difference. Uh, the question is, are you going to recognize this difference or is there an agenda here where the rich and powerful do not like the idea of difference and they are proposing uh, removing it as a way of controlling you? Is there an, an agenda behind it? Of course there is. Of course there is. Uh, read, uh, uh, go into gender, look up the word gender. You'll find John Money, uh, Johns Hopkins, the man who created the idea of gender as disconnected from reality. Uh, he had funding of rich and powerful people. And they, the, Johns Hopkins now leads the world in gender reassignment surgery. So they're paying you. You have to pay them to mutilate you. They make money by mutilating the human body and causing misery and saying that it, it's uh, it's uh, a form of uh, health, health care. <laughs> and uh, being paid by state. Excuse me. What, no say problem. that again. And, and it's being paid by state. I yes. mean, you're state, all paying for... The state is fully committed to the eradication of any notion of human sexuality as part of nature. The state is committed to that. That's part of the whole promotion of homosexuality, which is, is war against nature. Is this anti-logos? Of course it is. There's nothing more anti-logos than homosexuality. It's obvious you're, you are defying the logos of human sexuality, which is basically male and female 
leading to procreation. Your actions are an act of total defiance against God's law, and God's law is the is logos. That's what logos is. So for for just so we we came to a conclusion. One hour is uh, around, and could you say just final words for uh, our listeners about? What what would you say to them? Logos is and how to um, how to recognize it and how to uh, try to live by logos. Logos is uh, the is rationality, uh, the order of the universe. It is the characteristic we share with God, and He created us as rational creatures. It is the plan for our lives. It is the plan for a successful life. The first manifestation, uh, I mean, we all look at the universe and see some type of order there. Okay, so we understand that intuitively. We understand it in our own lives because the manifestation of logos, of reason in your own life is practical reason, which is morality. And you realize that if you want to have a successful life, you have to lead a moral life, even though you seem to uh, want to do other things other times. So that's that's what it is. And God in human history has allowed people to rebel against it to prove his point. <laughs> that is the whole point here. This is precisely what happened with sexuality, with pornography. There was a, a whole cohort of people in their 20s, 30s. They grew up with pornography. It was part of their lives. And they realized it made them miserable. And so this all God did was allow these people to prove his point and now they're turning to it they're turning to logos they're turning to books like libido dominandi and logos rising because they understand this is the true situation and this is the the path to happiness that's why they're turning away uh one last thing one last thing uh you're coming to zagreb if i'm correct inshallah as the uh as our muslim brothers <laughs> if say. god wills If God wills it, and so far the COVID virus has uh, ended that uh, debate. There was supposed to be a debate in Zagreb. Uh, Frody, the man who organized it, said it's been postponed, that it will happen again. So I hope it does, uh, because I'm looking forward to coming back there. I was looking forward. I wanted to come to Zagreb. Perfect. And I hope to meet you there, sir, to get uh, a signed copy of your book. Um, and uh, it was really pleasure talking to you. Do you maybe have some final words for our listeners? Oh, that, thank you. I hope to I hope to see you there. And thank you for having me. It was a great discussion. And, uh, you know, greetings to all my friends in Slovenia. Maybe we'll see each other in Zagreb. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll definitely come there in five buses and we'd, we'd rather go there than to Magigoria. <laughs> okay. Thank <laughs> Have you. Have a nice day and God bless, sir. Thank you. Thank Bye. you.